Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve. Hello and welcome to another episode of Spy Talk. I'm Jeff Stein. My co-host Gene Meserve is off this week. We're devoting this entire episode to a new and startling book by a former senior CIA operations officer, Douglas London. Doug London, who grew up in New York City, spent much of his 34 years in the CIA in North Africa, the Middle East, and South Asia, from the shores of Tripoli and Beirut to the mountains and plains of Afghanistan and beyond. Mostly, he was recruiting foreigners to spy for the CIA or managing spying operations. Appropriately, then, his new book is called The Recruiter, Spying and the Lost Art of American Intelligence. But wait, the lost art? London has written a scorching portrait of what he sees as decades of CIA mismanagement, from a failure to prevent terrorist attacks on Americans abroad and at home, to not foreseeing the so-called Arab Spring or the rise of the Islamic State terrorist group until it was too late. He describes how some of these senior officials made serious mistakes from endorsing torture to going along with the Bush White House on non-existent Iraqi weapons of mass destruction, to mismanaging spies in Iran, mismanaging them so badly that they were rounded up and killed. Yet these managers all got promoted, while dissenters were punished, London says. He also describes a very disturbing strain of anti-Semitism and prejudice against women and gays in the CIA. We talked on August 27th as the crisis in Afghanistan was spiraling out of control. Doug London, welcome to Spy Talk. We're here to talk about your new book, The Recruiter, Spying and the Lost Art of American Intelligence. In it, you express your love of spying, the great art of recruiting foreign agents. You say the agency has had many unheralded successes and operations through the years, recruiting foreigners and the like, covert action and so on. But you also paint a devastating portrait of the agency's management over the last 25 years in particular. I think it's the most devastating portrait of CIA management since Victor Marchetti and John Mark's book, The CIA and the Cult of Intelligence, way back in 1974. You write that in the past, the best case officers, spy recruiters, were rewarded with promotions. But since 911, the opposite has been true. Officers who work the patronage system at home advance the quickest. Can you elaborate on that? Well, Jeff, thanks for having me on the program. It's always a pleasure talking to you and your audience. The book was a, a bit of an emotional journey for me, reflecting a, a cathartic chance to sort of purge myself of. 34 years of fun and sometimes not so much fun. The agency that I joined in 1984 with Wallace Fultz, and I speak to some of that, was different than the organization that it evolved into after 9-11. And the experience in the 17 ensuing years that I served after 9-11 thereabouts is really what, what drove me to want to make a statement. 
your remarks about the book would, would probably explain why the agency was eager to put up some obstacles for me and prevent me from publishing in ways that were both subtle and, and not so subtle. But I, I do give them credit that at the end of the day and a fair bit of negotiation, they allowed me to publish the large part of what I wrote. And again, with some pushback and some changes and some redactions mm-hmm. on the most sensitive, but not wandering too far from your, your point. Well, first of all, we, we should clarify that you don't reveal any secrets in the book uh, per se. You don't divulge the true names of CIA officers and certainly not foreign agents. You do not name particular countries that you're describing operations in, although those of us who cover intelligence know who you're talking about. But go ahead. The fundamental point of the book is the agency culture changed after 9-11, and it changed deliberately at the direction of its leadership. The agency at 9-11 thereafter, and then again, took another gut punch, if you would, over Iraq, mission accomplished. Uh, You're referring to the search for the non-existence, non-existent weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. The, The slam dunk, it would be all that, yeah. So the agency saw an existential threat to its survival after 9-11. And in order to overcome what it believed would be threat of variously absorption by the United States military, because Donald Rumsfeld at the time, Secretary of Defense, was eager to take some of the turf that the agency had secured, particularly in our reaction to 9-11 and ability to quickly deploy to Afghanistan, where U.S. military forces did not. And then with Iraq and the the public acrimony, rightful uh, against what happened there and the 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 lack of WMD and accusations of an intelligence failure in 9/11, which in a broad way were founded, but not not maybe to the way people see or it's accepted, that the agency had to adapt. And unfortunately, in adapting, it chose uh, a path of how it could best serve the political interest of whatever White House was in mm-hmm. power at that time. And in order to align with White House interests, that which would sell what the CIA could do uniquely, which was largely covert action, that would gain favor and maybe secure that position that the agency was worried it might actually lose. It took on not just different missions, but those missions transitioned the culture and a culture of what was really an elite spy service to one where a much more rigid structure, where conformity- Militarized. The agency was militarized, you're right. Which was never the case before 9-11. Certainly, the agency was a smaller place before 9-11. It it grew massively in size, as the entire IC, the intelligence community did. But it was an organization where the most junior officer could speak to the most senior case officer, at least, on a first name basis, there was not so much, you know, that air of pretentiousness. There were egos, case officers, my God, everybody's got an ego. Spies have huge egos, right? But it wasn't this, yes, sir, this wasn't, well, you know, I don't even have the need to listen to someone who's so junior to me, who doesn't even get to be in the room with me, where that was a, a sharp change from the agency I knew and, and the agency I loved. And it changed the culture that impacted our operations, the way we conducted them. Well, what what made this come alive is you said suddenly people started referring to their bosses as sir. That's really a military culture. 
That was not the case before this militarization of the CIA. And you say the CIA had to sort of get in the whack-a-mole game to compete with the Pentagon and keep its uh, position forefront at the White House. But you say the agency really went off the rails when it embraced so-called enhanced interrogation techniques. That really was a contradiction of everything we hold dear to our hearts as human collectors, as case officers, where you know we don't necessarily like the person in the box that we might be interrogating if we're in an interrogation, but our job's to win them over. Our job is to secure trust and manipulate them so not only will they cooperate, never to a point where we fully trust them, but cooperate because they see an incentive to doing that. They see some reward in some degree that they can trust their debriefer to at least deliver on whatever promises, and it won't be freedom necessarily, but whatever promises are made. That goes against the grain. We don't coerce people into spying for us because it's not effective, not because mm-hmm. we're great guys and or great people and all moral. It's just not effective. So why would we then believe that brute force in interrogation would be effective? And- so, so why did the agency embrace this? Because it wanted to stay in good odor at the White House? When the whole issue of enhanced interrogation, and, and it really started with the rendition program, even prior to... Let's the- define what rendition is. It's so- snatching people off the street someplace. Uh, well, yeah, and, you, can, you can call and, it. And taking them to uh, an interrogation not, site. It's not always us snatching them. Sometimes they were snatched for us by local government partners, if I might be so bold. So um, we would receive detainees from partners, allies, who officially would detain someone or not officially detain and turn them over to us. So it began with where can we put these people? The White House had a problem. The White House had detainees coming from Afghanistan had prisoners being arrested by Pakistani security services there, and had no legal case for the FBI to hold these people. There was no substantive, there was no charges, there was no evidence. So there was an acceptance that, okay, these were bad guys. These were people who were involved in terrorist activities or combat. They were certainly combatants on the battlefield with the United States. So what could we do for them? And the agency provided an answer, you know, We could do what the DOD can't do, what FBI certainly can't do. We'll find a way to covertly hold them. So that explains uh, the CIA opening the so-called black sites where the interrogations took place. But why was it that the CIA management embraced the enhanced interrogation techniques, torture? That's a a big leap. But... We were involved in that in Vietnam as well, and in Central America and and South America. So it wasn't exactly new for the CIA to get involved in this business to one degree or another. By this time, post 9-11, the leadership of the agency was filled with folks, and I'll take care so I don't like leave myself open to lawsuits, of folks who themselves embraced a very conservative, religious, political, social view of the world had come from positions in the military and were much more willing to embrace a harsher code of engagement with detainees or even agents at this point. And the program itself was farmed out to contract psychologists and 
program managers and not really manned by operations officers or case officers. So they farmed it out in terms of developing the program. And farmed it, farmed it out to these psychologists who really, no one in a reasonable organization would have hired these guys to do anything. But yet CIA, our premier spy service, our premier vetting agency, hired people who were just not qualified and were throwing magic potions at the CIA and how it would get detainees to talk. How, how could that possibly happen? Well, because uh, it's a confluence of events. At the same time, the organization became one where it rewarded conformists. It rewarded people in certain cliques who wanted to climb the ladder. So it was more rewarding to say, what a great idea. How can I support this? And how can I be a part of it so that I too can reap the credit and get promotion? So it was a really unfortunate time where folks took advantage of what they saw as professional opportunities to make ethical and professional compromises, which Mm -hmm. I believe is what led to validation of the program going forward. And you note that uh, Director John Brennan chose a man to be the director of operations, the cutting edge of CIA activities around the world, uh, who was a career paramilitary officer who had virtually no experience in agent recruiting operations. But worse, you say, he helped Brennan quote, expunged the clandestine service of dissenters. It was another example to the operations workforce of ambition and cronyism as opposed to merit and mission. So addressing that was difficult for me. Uh, This is a man who's literally a war hero and has literally sacrificed his life on the battlefield time and time again. And there's no one in whom I'd have greater respect and admiration under those circumstances, but he was not an experienced case officer. He was not traditionally an agent handler, agent recruiter. And I think it was easier for him to see his world through this very CA-centric path the agency had taken. And because no doubt he had his own past run-ins with case officers who might have looked down on him or in his eyes looked down on him for his operational prowess. And now he had the upper hand. And the period that you're talking about is the period of modernization in which Mr. Brennan himself, I believe, suffered from some of these considerations in wanting to transform the agency to one that was more of a policy-making organ, which it was never intended to be, to have a seat at the table, less of a spy service, less of an independent collector, and more a player in the game. And he had to weaken the clandestine service, the director of operations to do so. So the officer who he chose, again, who I have the greatest admiration for, made for a good partner in that, unfortunately, for the service. You write that he went over to the dark side. What do you mean by that? Like many who achieved that level, at least within the organization, of notoriety, he was indeed iconic within the organization and for lots of real good reason. But I found, surprisingly, for folks who grow up as spies, who are all about being very grounded and salt of the earth because they need to be able to engage anyone from any part of society, regardless of education or credentials or position, and they start becoming a bit, if I shall say, full of themselves and, you know, to use the the Beltway term, drinking their own Kool-Aid and thus... They're so used to accolades and sycophants telling them how great they are 
there's very few are going to tell them different and fewer still who might that will get a, a fair hearing. You were writing your book, of course, during the last days of the last administration. Since then, Biden has been elected, of course, and has appointed a new CIA director, Bill Burns, who's a veteran, very skilled, highly admired diplomat who's in tough, tough place right now with the unfolding tragedy in, in Afghanistan. In any event, this fellow who we were talking about, who you name Ian, you say whether he remains or has moved aside with the new administration will be telling regarding the sincerity of the new leadership and turning a new leaf. Do you know if uh, Director Burns removed him or not? Really not at liberty to say. I have some insight, but if and when that happens, it will be more public knowledge, so I'll, I'll let events unfold. Ian, probably one of the most brilliant operations officers that I've ever met, but is really an example of someone who fed off their own um, success in hubris and, and became rather insular and is one of the main contributors to moving us down this path where uh, moving us away from inclusion, moving us away from foreign intelligence collection, who fancied himself quite a military strategist, though having never spent a day in uniform himself. Well, I suspect that he's such a good uh, bureaucrat that he would uh, turn on a dime to support the new director's priorities. But we'll see. I'll, I'll stay on top of that. The current chief of the clandestine service is a fabulous officer. I know him and, and have the greatest respect for him. But he's also an officer who prizes loyalty. And he had a very good and long-lasting relationship with Ian. That might play a role in what happens to Ian in the future. Okay. You present a very damning portrait of another leader of the director of operations who you call Lex. I know who he is, but again, I won't ask you to renege on your security pledge by revealing his real name. But you can thank you for that. Well, wasn't much of an option. You weren't going to identify him in any event. But anyway, you pin responsibility for the CIA's devastating loss of Iranian agents on him. You write, quote, Lex would leave a trail of bodies, specifically dead Iranian agents in his wake. And yet he got promoted. How could that happen? We're not talking about running a candy bar factory here. You know, one of the ironic twists about the agency is very rarely have careers suffered when operations went awry, when agents have died. Mm -hmm. Careers go awry over money, when people, you know, or make mistakes about, about money, but mostly when they get out of favor uh, politically. Yeah. Lex, he, he um, associated himself with some rather powerful people who helped him advance his career. And Lex wasn't unique in being a, an officer, even at that, that point in his career, where operational mistakes would come back to haunt him. Because if they'd come back to haunt him, they'd come back to haunt his superiors who also blessed and approved those operations. So there's a bit of a circle of the wagons mentality when agents die and operations go wrong. Wow. It's amazing that people don't get fired for losing lots of foreign agents if that's their duty to uh, protect them with uh, tradecraft, which was Lex's responsibility. You write that the CIA covers up its mistakes like losing agents by claiming it has to protect its sources and methods. The result, you write, is that, quote, no CIA officers were held accountable for 911 
the intelligence failure, Iraq, WMD, enhanced interrogations, the uh, bombing of the CIA base in coast in Afghanistan, which cost the lives of several CIA officers. You write that they that the agency managers failed to identify the rise of the Islamic State before it spread across two countries and wreaked havoc in Europe. Isn't there any accountability at senior ranks of CIA? I have unfortunately not witnessed accountability for intelligence failures like this and, and in turn the, the loss of lives. I, I have unfortunately seen more of this sentiment that, well, we have to hide behind sources and methods and we've got to protect one another. And by this point, those who would fall would be at the senior ranks who is sort of a self-populating group of people who include others who are either you know, patrons, supporters, what have you, and will sort of fit that loyalty system. It's hard and it, it comes out in consequences because you have to learn the lessons of these failures. And certainly we need to protect sources and methods, but there's no need to provide accountability to the detail of agents and operations to the public, but certainly inside, at least inside the intel community and absolutely inside the agency. And what I witnessed firsthand in uh, the aftermath of Coast, and I would hesitate to, to be too hyperbolic, but there was a lot left out of that investigation. There were a lot of people who were sidelined, who had a lot to, they wanted to say and to offer, whose opinions weren't taken. And a lot of people protecting one another, because how could those many people die in an episode which internally the agency will highlight the mistakes in tradecraft, all of which were approved up and down the chain of command, in fact, encouraged for expediency in the case of Coast because of the sensational potential of information that might lead to Zawahiri at the time, this was when Bin Laden was still. Well, let's stop for just a second, Doug, and un, un, unroll this a little bit for people not familiar with what happened. The CIA thought it had an agent inside Al Qaeda's leadership, not one of the leaders, but someone who had participated in meetings, had personal meetings with Al Qaeda leaders and so on. It was a doctor who was offered to the CIA by the Jordanian intelligence service. The CIA was so excited. These same managers we've been talking about were so excited about this agent that they were briefing the White House on it. I wrote about that in a magazine piece years ago. They were just giddy with the idea that they had penetrated Al-Qaeda. So when they were finally able to establish a personal meeting with him at a CIA base in Afghanistan called Coast, somehow people in charge just disregarded all the standard tradecraft to ensure the safety of everyone by having him come onto a base unchecked uh, and to roll right up to the CIA uh, offices on the base where several officers went out to give him a greeting. This guy had not been patted down. He had not been brought into the base in a secure manner. All the CIA's just standard tradecraft was thrown out the window. How do you explain that? Well, there's so many threads of failure involved in that tragedy. Um, where to begin? I think you, you, you captured well, broadly, by saying this was a sensational opportunity. Uh, and here was a case where professionals who know better 
valued access over validation of an agenda and hostile control. Abu Dujana is uh, the Cunha, the, uh, the, the name of the individual to whom you're speaking, a Jordanian doctor. Mm-hmm. Had been arrested by the Jordanian Intelligence Service, the GID, for um, activities uh, in support of Islamic jihadists. Uh, he had some some contacts at that point, uh, not necessarily high level contacts, but some contacts back to Al Qaeda, uh, the terror Taliban Pakistan, uh, which is a partner group of Al Qaeda. Mm-hmm. Basically, was the subject of a jailhouse recruit by the Jordanians. Basically, if you work for us, we'll let you out. And to cut to the chase here, he actually was a double agent or maybe even triple agent, Jordanian CIA and Al-Qaeda. And he came upon that into that base in Coast without being patted down, without being thoroughly vetted. The CIA leadership did not understand that this guy had not gotten insight that this guy could be a double agent. He comes onto the base, blows himself up with a suicide vest and takes the lives of several CIA officers with him. Well, yeah, but the circumstances are even worse. There were signs, there were indications of hostile control that we certainly wrote about afterwards and say, look at this, look at this. And of course, hindsight's 2020, right? But some of these were glaring for a professional intelligence service. The only thing that we really established with him was his access. And here's the danger. He did have access. He was able to ingratiate himself to well-placed Al-Qaeda and TTP members. So we were able to do enough due diligence to, you know, confirm, no, he's actually talking to these people. What we didn't know was what he was talking about and what he was going to do. So when he came to the base in the rush to meet him and the rush, and this was going to be the first meeting between CIA and Abu Dujana, he had only met his Jordanian handler and his goals really, Abu Dujana, his goal was to kill the Jordanian. He had no expectation he was going to be driven onto a CIA base and have so many targets. But what then makes it worse, here's someone who's totally unvetted, unvalidated. There's indications of hostile control. And the base chief, who was a wonderful woman and a fabulous analyst, was not an operations officer, had not been trained for such, never handled agents or, or, or been forward except for temporary trips to provide briefings, was running the base and insisted that much of her staff was going to go out there and greet him as a show of how much we you know, want to need him. And it was his birthday, and she had a cake baked for him mm. being rushed out to be delivered. What makes it worse was that she was advised by two of her senior um, advisors. She had a paramilitary advisor and a senior retired operations advisor telling her this was a really bad idea. And she also made this meeting in the presence of a senior officer from Kabul, who was in her chain of command, who had no concerns with this and was among the victims of the bombing he survived and and assumed very senior positions thereafter and was fine with the decision to greet Abu Dujana without the pat down, with all of her people exposed. And having gone back to the site of the explosion when I visited Afghanistan, uh, you know, on occasion, this site, uh, it's heart-wrenching to see that ground and the still the, the holes in the ball bearings that tore through people and are still visible around the walls in the area. And like you say, uh, no one paid a penalty for that, except, of course, the woman who ran the operation at the base and her colleagues who got 
killed in a very terrible way. And yet the senior officials, no problem. They just got ahead. Really a damning portrait. And something else you bring up in the book that really, really shocked me at this particular time. Here we are in 2021. And that is anti-Semitism. You say that you would get these sort of snide references to being a New Yorker from the Lower East Side and so on. That was lightly camouflaged language, calling you a Jew. And he expressed incredibility that a Jew could recruit Arabs. Elaborate on that. So I grew up in New York City, uh, and I'm Jewish, but, you know, rather secular, and had to get along with a lot of folks since I was generally the only Jewish, if not only white person in my neighborhood. Probably was what equipped me to be, you know, effective as a case officer. So I, my real exposure to anti-Semitism was to some degree in New York, but, you know, there's such a Jewish community that it's just sort of brushed aside. Uh, I didn't really get exposed to it until I joined the Marine Corps and uh, trained in Paris Island in South Carolina. and met some of my fellow recruits from various parts of the country to whom I was the first Jew they had ever met. And, uh, and, and it's going to got my first taste. And, and this was about when? 1980, when? 1981, when I joined the Marines. Okay. 1984, when I joined the agency. But I didn't expect it from a foreign intelligence service whose whole job is to mix with different cultures and embrace different cultures and engage. Exactly. So it was rather a surprise to me. Um, I, was, I was a trainee at the time when it kind of first happened. And uh, I had a, a wonderful training assignment in what was then the Near East Division, Near East and South Asia Division. And uh, part of the seasoning of trainees is you let them sit on different desks for a while, get them, get them a taste of reading operational cables and seeing ops and talking to people, meeting people before you put them into the operational training themselves. And I had, I had a wonderful time, was treated fabulously by the folks there, including my management. Any division, like much of the DO, was still a very white largely Catholic or largely, you know, otherwise Christian uh, group uh, that had run the place. In fact, many of those who were Catholic just loved to refer to themselves as CIA Catholics in action. Mm-hmm. And I remember towards the end of my training assignment, I, I was, uh, went to my managers, my media ones, and I was like, this has been wonderful. This is where I want to work. This is where the excitement is. This is where the real espionage is. Hezbollah, remember, the terrorists the April 83 bombing of the embassy, October 83 bombing of the Marine barracks. I wanted to come there and steal secrets. And, um, you know, I, I made no secret of my background. I, I, you know, that I was, you know, a Jewish kid from New York. And in their very polite way, they told me that, well, I, I probably wouldn't be competitive and well-received in the division, nor considered very capable to go out and recruit Arabs. Uh, and I got pushed along the chain of command to different managers who would talk to me about it and size my problem because apparently this was a problem for me at the time. And you would hear these snide remarks or references fairly consistently from these guys. Yeah, fairly consistently. uh, uh, But even in the years to come after they took me in, but it was not even uh, an inference. When I met with the the PEMS officer, it's what we call the personnel and evaluations manager, kind of like the chief of HR, but on the clandestine side in a division, a brilliant Arabist, a great operations officer in the area. But when he sat down with me, he asked me things such as, well, you know, do I wear my religion on my sleeve? Will I have to consult with my rabbi? 
presumptions that I found shocking for an educated man to be confronting me with. So, Is that because they suspected that Jews working for the CIA could be lulled or recruited by the Israelis? Yeah, it was it was an inference that I would expect out of um, some of the, the my Arab counterparts across the Middle East. I would assume a Jewish American automatically is prizing and prioritizing their loyalty to Israel. But even my my own colleagues, they thought I would at least have a bias towards Israel, which is ironic because most of those officers were were no friends of Israel, and for good reason. We had had various operational problems with the Israelis killing our agents and sources intentionally at times. And it was a very much a, a, a dynamic where the Arabists in the Near East Division had a sentiment in favor of the Palestinians, which for me, actually, I, I shared to a bit, uh, at least seeing the, their, their plight, so that I would be subject to this perception that, well, I'm going to be in bed with the Israelis, was, you know, uh, or with my rabbi, was a little uh, uncomfortable and awkward. And what happened? Did that, in fact, hamper your career? I mean, you retired after some three decades as as a very senior operations official. So it it didn't hamper your career. It it, it really did it. It just sort of was a constant annoyance. Well, in some ways it did, Um, at least when I was kind of coming up the ladder in the 80s and the 90s. The reference you make to, oh, you're, you know, a Lower East Side kid or whatever like that, that was on my third tour. And my, my third assignment from the, the headquarters-based manager of that region. When Lex took over uh, in the senior ranks after 9-11, Lex um, was very Catholic, very Opus Dei Catholic, and uh, was very open. Opus Dei is an extreme branch of yes. Catholicism. Very open in his disdain for me because of my being Jewish. And he was in a position that really did impact my career post 9-11 for periods of time as he cycled in and out of certain positions of responsibility for who got promoted and who got certain assignments and actually canceled one of my assignments and and took me off a promotion list. On the other side of the ledger, uh, does the CIA try to recruit Arab Americans? And does it feel that Arab Americans would be somehow biased toward, I don't know, their home, their, their their home of legacy, their where their families came from. The CIA did not have a very good track record for diversity of any sort up until 9-11, and even after 9-11, became more open to bringing in uh, members of various minorities to the analytical side or support side, uh, less so to the clandestine service where they had to be entrusted with agents and recruiting agents and, and handling agents for, I believe, some of these biases and unfortunate perceptions of who, where people would have loyalties. The security process is also really challenging, as you well know, and bringing in uh, those who are naturalized Americans who have still contacts and, and family members uh, in their, their countries of origin is really tricky to get through the security process. And, and I don't think we have yet come up with a really effective way to balance security with a real fair, objective look at folks who we need desperately for their language skills, their cultural ability, their, and their ability to operate in areas where, as you know, an older white male American, 
I'm going to stand out a little bit in Somalia and Baghdad and some of these places mm-hmm. where we would just benefit so greatly from these officers and, and, and the gifts they bring to the table. Do you know of any Arab Americans who have ascended to the top ranks of CIA leadership? As a matter of fact, I do. The most senior ones weren't case officers. They came from technical or analytic backgrounds. There are Arab Americans who are case officers or in the business who are ascending, who are rising. There's a couple, I believe, who've broken into the senior intelligence service ranks, which is our most senior ranks, according to a, a general in the military. But a lot of them came in uh, so recently, they're not really there where they uh, are there in the numbers to be selected, but they're doing much better now. And I can only hope their numbers will increase as the agency takes a a better, more enlightened look at uh, bringing in officers of ethnic minorities, regardless of what that ethnicity is. It would seem to an outsider anyway, that CIA has developed a much more enlightened view about women in the CIA. After all, we've had a woman running the CIA, Gina Haspel. Across the board, women get a fair shake at CIA? It's gotten better. It's getting better. I think it um, has some some makeup to do in terms of redressing uh, the challenges that female officers had. I think there's definitely a clear sensitivity to making sure the agency is offering an even playing field to people, regardless of race, religion, gender, nationality, and such like that, I think it's going to take some time to catch up. If you look at the junior ranks, I think the junior ranks of the agency are much more reflective of the reality of America than are the senior ranks. That takes time. There was great resistance for a while. Again, I don't always want to cast them as the ultimate villain, but Lex controlled promotions and basically the anointed, the future leaders through a good many years. And I don't want to be too specific, but enough years that we're still feeling the impact of who he brought up and nurtured and who he excluded from uh, the senior ranks. Well, we can only hope for better days there. As you point out, operating in many regions of the world where white males would stand out like sore thumbs, uh, we need agents, or excuse me, officers, operations officers of all hues and ethnic backgrounds and and skin colors and so on. I mean, we're in the spying business. Speaking of which, the subtitle of your really absolutely wonderful book in a kind of frightening way, the subtitle of your book is Spying and the Lost Art of American Intelligence. What does that mean? Have we lost the art of being an intelligence agency? I believe that the journey the agency went on post 9-11 and the cultural shift to becoming much more of a a military type of organization, and with sort of a heavy lean towards covert action, we started to lose our values, our cultures, and our approach to human intelligence. That at the end of the day, the foundation of intelligence collection is about people. That's Douglas London. His book is called The Recruiter, Spying and the Lost Art of American Intelligence. And that's it for this week's episode of Spy Talk. For more on this and similar issues, check out Spy Talk on Substack. You can find it easily via Google. Until then, thanks much for tuning in. I'm Jeff Stein. See you next week. 
For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.